Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The enemy we have to face down is inflation. You can't overstate how much a short-term mindset dominates Westminster. The cost of living crisis is not going away. It's very real for people. We've got to focus very much on the things that will really bring back growth. The UK has certainly been a very strong supporter of Ukraine from the outset. We have to stay the course to make sure inflation falls all the way back to the 2% target. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. On today's programme, PMQs without the PM. We'll also bring you a conversation with Karen Ward, who's Chief Market Strategist at JP Morgan Asset Management, and on Jeremy Hunt's Council of Economic Advisors as well. She's got some views on where the UK economy is going uh, for the rest of the year, as we've had an update from the OECD uh, talking about how things could be a bit limited for the government before an election in terms of fiscal space you know in fiscal space no one can hear you scream <laughs> well the point is that markets now expect higher interest rates so borrowing's more expensive so that means that the chancellor according to the OECD is likely to have less no more headroom mm. than the record low headroom that he had in March but when Tory MPs are lining up to ask for tax cuts before the next election it puts the chancellor and the PM in a difficult spot yeah certainly something a bit tricky perhaps not something that's going to come up in PM Cues today. We've got the deputies on duty today. Oliver Dowden and Angela Rayner stepping in because Rishi Sunak is in Washington, of course, where he's going to be meeting US President uh, Joe Biden. We've got a full briefing actually on that visit in yesterday's episode of the UK Politics Podcast if you want to catch up uh, before the two leaders meet. Yeah, we've also got the B team here, haven't we? Oh, Me we're and not you. the B team. <laughs> Lizzie, Lizzie and you, er, Caroline and you and are otherwise engaged today, uh, but we're we're still here keeping keeping the the politics podcast propped up um, as we are listening in to Angela Rayner and Oliver Dowden discussing. Uh, could be a bit of a wind in the sails, perhaps, for Angela Rayner? Yeah, the most recent polling actually suggests that Labour's on track for a landslide victory at the next election. So it sees them winning 470 seats and the Tories only getting 129. So this is data from Focal Data. It's actually a wider sample size than is usually used. Uh, so maybe she will have a bit of a spring in her step. They'll also likely perhaps talk about the COVID inquiry, all the drama around Boris Johnson's WhatsApps. Yeah, whoever knew that WhatsApps could be so controversial, but this is certainly a story that keeps uh, rumbling on as well. It's worth reflecting too on the Rishi Sunak's attendance record at PMQ, something highlighted by the Labour advisor Damien McBride on, on Twitter. By missing today's PMQs means that Rishi Sunak is actually, his attendance record is the worst for Prime Ministers since 1979. 83% he's at because he's missed uh, four of 24. And yet, uh, do you know who has the perfect attendance record? 
Go on. Least trust. Three out of three. Well, that's nice to have that, you know, <laughs> on her on her records list. And there I was thinking that Rishi Sunak was the nerd who comes early to meetings. No, oh, indeed. Pleasure to watch. Let's listen in to Angela Rayner. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Speaking of the last election, the Tory manifesto promised to end the abuse of the judicial review. How's it going? <laughs> well, I, I welcome the much shorter question from the Right Honourable Lady today. Well, let me just remind the Right Honourable Lady of a few facts about the COVID inquiry. We set up the COVID inquiry. We have provided it with more than 55,000 documents so far. We have given it all the financial resources it needs so that we can learn the lessons from the pandemic. But, Mr Speaker, in Wales, they also had a pandemic. And what have the Labour-run Wales authorities done there? No independent inquiry in Wales. As ever, one rule for Labour and another for everyone else. Speaker, he acts like it pretends that it's complicated, but it's simple. They set up the inquiry to get to the truth, then blocked that inquiry from getting the information that it asked for, and now they're taking it to court. I know he considers himself a man of the people, so using his vast knowledge of working-class Britain, does he think working people will thank him for spending hundreds of thousands of pounds of their money on loophole lawyers just so that the government can obstruct the Covid inquiry? Well, we will provide the inquiry with each and every document related to COVID, including all internal discussions in any form as requested, while crucially protecting what is wholly and unambiguously irrelevant. Because essentially, the Right Honourable Lady is calling for years' worth of documents and messages between named individuals to be in scope, and that, Mr Speaker, could cover anything from civil servants' medical conditions to intimate details about their families. But I really will say to the Right Honourable Lady, I find it extraordinary that she should lecture us on value for money for the taxpayer, when I understand she has now purchased two pairs of noise-cancelling headphones on expenses. No, I will be fair. I will be fair to the right honourable lady. If I had to attend shadow cabinet meetings, I think I'd want to tune them out too. Can, can I just say that Deputy Prime Minister was very good saying he was welcoming short questions. I'd also welcome shorter answers. Mr Speaker, all we're asking for is what the Covid inquiry has asked for. And across the world, Covid inquiries are well underway. While his government hides information and shells out public money on legal bills for the Oxbridge One, the former Prime Minister is now demanding another million to pay for his new lawyers. Now, I know the honourable gentleman and his former boss has fallen out, and maybe he wants to patch things up, but can he seriously say this is a good use of taxpayers' money? Deputy Prime Minister. If we want to talk about relationships between between different people, I don't think we need to search her WhatsApp messages to know that there's no communication between her and the leader of her party. And I will happily, happily stand up 
for our record on COVID. Because when she and her party were carping from the sidelines, calling for longer lockdowns, I was working as culture secretary to keep our football clubs running, to protect our theatres and museums, and deliver the largest cultural recovery package in the Western world. That's the difference between her and me, Mr Speaker. While she was collecting titles, I was getting on with the job. Mr Speaker, I know for the last couple of years he's been trying to prep PM Prime Ministers for this, but these punchlines are dire. He really (laughs) needs to go back to school himself. And speaking of school, thousands of children are missing from school. Absence has nearly doubled since before the pandemic. The Prime Minister says he's maxed out on his support for school pupils. But why did the government abandon its plans for a register of missing children? Deputy Prime Minister. Well, on the specifics of the right honourable lady's question, that is not the case, and we continue to keep the policy under review. And what I would say is I am am very proud of this government's record on funding and support for schools. £4 billion more this year. £4 billion next year, and the result of all of that investment is we have the highest standards of reading in the entire Western world. What a contrast from when the party opposite were in power. Angela Rayner. So there we have it, Mr Speaker. Thousands of children missing under review still. So let me ask him about another uh, something else that's gone missing. The Public Accounts Committee this week revealed that the government's fraud increased fourfold, mm. with ministers overseeing the loss of £21 billion of taxpayers' money in the last two years. Can he tell us how much of our money they expect to recover? Yeah. Yeah. The Prime Minister. Well... Mr Speaker, we are working tirelessly to recover those funds and have made and we have made huge progress already. But again, if the party opposite wants to talk about wants to talk about good use of taxpayers' money, what do we have from the party opposite? Plans for an unfunded twenty-eight billion pound spending spree. And what would that do? drive up borrowing, push up interest rates, adding £1,000 to everyone's mortgage. Mr Speaker, I know they're out of touch, but even she must realise that Britain cannot afford Labour. Angela Rayner. Mr Speaker, Britain can't afford any more of the Conservatives. He seems to have lost count. The answer is a quarter. Only a quarter of the billions of pounds of taxpayers' money lost to fraud is expected to be clawed back. If this government can't get the public money back, they can't be trusted with anything else. It's become a pattern of behaviour from the Conservatives. An inquiry missing the evidence, schools missing their pupils, taxpayers missing their money and ministers missing in action. And all the while... Working people pay the price for their mistakes. This week, the Public Accounts Committee also warned that this epic fraud and waste could happen all over again due to the ministers living in denial of the facts. If his government can't admit the truth, then how on earth can they learn the lessons? Deputy Prime Minister. 
Well, I would say to the right and lady, we are actually putting more resources in throughout this year to tackle fraud and error, and we continue to make real progress with it. But again, it's, it's quite extraordinary from the, from, the, from the party opposite. While we are working to drive down inflation and energy bills, what's, what's the right honourable lady doing? Receiving £10,000 from Just Stop Oil backers. Adopting their policies, backing protesters, blocking new production, and forcing us to import more foreign oil and gas. Do you know what? For once, Mr. Speaker, I find myself in agreement with the GMB union. What did they say? It's naive, lacks intellectual rigour, and could decimate communities, just like Labour. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The the latest route update for East West Rail has recently been published, and unfortunately, the link to Aylesbury is still just a dotted line on the map. Now, I've raised the need for this vital link on several occasions in the House because it'll cut congestion on our roads, it'll stimulate the economy, and it will reduce air pollution. Each time I've been asked to work with stakeholders to reduce the cost, I'm really pleased to say we've managed to do that. There is now a much cheaper proposal on the table. So can my right honourable friend now please change that dotted line into a solid line and give my constituents the railway they do want? I know my honourable friend is an absolutely tireless campaigner for this project, and I can assure him that the Department for Transport is working with Network Rail and the East West Rail Company to consider the feasibility of lower cost railway links on the Aylesbury Spur, and I know that he will continue to make that case very, very vigorously. We now come to the Deputy Leader of the SNP, Murray Black. Thank you, Mr Speaker. When the Prime Minister took office, he said he would put economic stability and confidence at the heart of this government. Today, UK interest rates are one of the highest in the G20, and mortgage rates are rising nearly back to where they were after the former PM crashed the economy. Is it not the case that this government's biggest achievement is that they're trashing the economy just a wee bit slower than their predecessor? Well, I don't know whether the Honourable Lady had been following the news today, but actually, again, the OECD upgraded our growth forecasts. And really, one, one month ago, I, the whole nation came together celebrating that wonderful moment of pomp, pageantry and pride in our nation. And what did the, right, what did the Honourable Lady describe it as? I quote, I quote, Mr. Speaker, a pantomime. Well, the real pantomime is the SNP in Scotland. Well, they're black. Okay, so we have been listening in there to Deputy Prime Minister's questions with Oliver Dowden, Angela Rayner from the Labour Party. Uh, we heard two there from Mary Black from the SNP towards the end, as well as Rob Butler, a question there for the MP for Aylesbury, asking about local train services too. So. Um, that was an interesting performance, I think, from all involved. Uh, but just on, on that economics point, Lizzie, I can see you fizzing to jump in about uh, Mary Black's criticism of the government's handling of the economy. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that Oliver Dowden wanted to cherry pick from the OECD's 
updated growth mm. forecast. It says that uh, now there's not going to be a recession. It's no longer a 0.4% contraction. Actually, it sees 0.3% growth. Are we really expected to celebrate anemic growth? Also, uh, in these forecasts, the OECD says that the UK could continue to see persistent inflation, more persistent uh, at an underlying level than in Germany, Italy and France. He didn't mention that. And as you said at the top of the hour, the OECD says because rates are now expected to be higher than the last time they made one of these forecasts, there's going to be little fiscal space for tax cuts. So it wasn't all good, actually, from the OECD today. No, indeed. And I think the, um, I, in fact, I think Angela Rayner probably sums it up better herself when she said the punchlines are dire. Mm. I, I think the punchlines were that great all around. I wouldn't be throwing stones in that glass house um, if I were... Angela Rayner either. But look, it, it was it was an interesting change of cast to what we're usually expecting from Prime Minister's questions. They did tackle, as expected, the COVID inquiry um, and those you know efforts ongoing or those legal action ongoing, of course, around what exactly the COVID inquiry will get access to when it comes to WhatsApp conversations, diaries, etc. Uh, under the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson, uh, some discussion too of education policy and the number of the level of absenteeism from schools as well. And I suppose some sort of classic back and forth about who can afford to spend what. Oh, well, including can taxpayers afford to spend money on what Angela Rayner calls loophole lawyers to evade the COVID inquiry? Oliver Dowden's rebuttal really being that lots of what it's holding back are irrelevant but there are quite a lot of lawyers out there pointing out that the government's getting to decide what is relevant and it's set and it's doing it itself and so perhaps you could say that makes the inquiry slightly toothless yeah a word too on that report from the um parliamentary committee earlier in the week about the fraud and government spending too and oliver dowden saying that they are working to recover that money leading to a few jeers in the opposition benches as mm-hmm. well as i think the question of how much they'll be able to recover from money that's been lost through fraud is still uh, very much in question so that's the latest from deputy prime minister's questions this week as it was uh, let's turn to get more detail on that oecd report though and the cold water they've poured on the hopes of any pre-election tax cuts from the government uh, they're talking about little fiscal space for giveaways because of the size of the national debt. Well, we've been discussing the outlook for the UK economy with Karen Ward. She's Chief Market Strategist for EMEA at JP Morgan Asset Management. She's also a member of the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt's Economic Advisory Council. So we started by asking her about the government's pledge to halve inflation by year end. I think that the inflation numbers actually are going to improve quite dramatically. The UK has been a sort of laggard of some of the benefits that have already happened in the US and already happened in Europe. So our energy contribution is still a couple of percentage points. That's now negative in the US and it's also disappeared in Europe. Food is also a decent chunk and there's signs that that's going to come off. So I think over the next couple of months we're definitely going to leave 10% numbers behind us and we should be headed down to 5 But I think that's where the positive story ends, really, because there are, um, I think, signs that the pandemic has done a little bit more long term damage to the economy, particularly in our labour market. We've had a lot of uh, individuals leave the labour market, um, don't seem to be coming back, whether that's the over 55s or those uh, claiming long term sickness as a reason for not being able to return to the labour market. And that's where persistent inflation comes from, from the labour market. When companies just don't have enough uh, workers, 
then the workers have got more ability to drive through higher wages mm. and that's where the persistence in the U- in the UK comes from so i think it's not quite so bad but it's not good news either okay and of course uh, part 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 of that is the brexit effect in terms of in terms of wages as well as the participation uh, rate for, for the labor the labor market so to be clear you do think that we get we get that halving of of inflation by by the end of the year to 5% but you think there's going to be there's going to be some stickiness to it yes. what in terms of the, the market's pricing and potentially five and a half percent for the Bank of England, does that does that seem overdone, or is that the kind of level that they're going to need to get to, to to break that persistence? I think a little bit overdone now. I mean, I've always said five. So in all, if we reverse back eighteen months when the Bank mm. of England was saying three and a half, we'll probably do it. And I was thinking, oh, no, I'm not sure about that. Five looks on the cards. But perhaps now as we go through the next few months, that headline number does come back. And we also know what's going on in the UK is there's quite a delayed pass through of their policy this time around because so many more people have got themselves onto two year and five year fixed rate mortgages. So we know as we go through the next 18 months that a lot of what they've already done is going to start to have an impact. So I think that the bank having now got to a more sensible place or at least will be before too long, probably have a little bit more scope to be patient. So I'm sticking with a number that's still five, maybe five and a quarter. Okay, interesting. Um, there have been criticisms, though, of late um, for the Bank of England in terms of um, the Bank of England's pandemic stimulus program having widened the gap between rich and poor. This is the criticism by the U- the government's mobility czar, actually, that that is an issue. Do you think that that is a kind of fair criticism, or was it? I mean, it's is in with the criticism around the Bank of England that it hasn't dealt with inflation quickly enough. I mean, I think globally, the central banks, we know, and this isn't just a criticism of the pandemic, but we know their unconventional extreme policies pushed up asset prices, didn't necessarily boost the domestic economy. So I think that's been a criticism somewhat fairly laid at all of their doorsteps for some time. But I also think it's not really their job to focus on distribution of their benefits. That's really should be what the government's focus is. Um, And the Bank of England obviously is a really small player in the global central banking um, universe. So it's not obvious to me. I think the Bank of England were a little slow off the mark to recognise the scale of the inflation problem. Um, But then how they cure inflation is to generate a recession and probably unemployment. And we know sadly, that that tends to fall on the shoulders who can least afford it. So it's not an obvious narrative to me that this is particularly, you know, that they haven't done it, that they are widening, they're significantly widening inequality. Do you see a recession and then rate cuts in 2024? I think a recession is still likely because sadly, as I said, they're, they're in a tough spot. You need to generate fragility because it's only fragility that makes companies think, maybe I won't have a go at pushing up my prices and makes workers say, maybe I'll, I'll just wait and I won't ask for that big pay rise. You need that sense of uncertainty and they, are, they need to generate that um, to get rid of this inflation problem. So yes, a, a recession is sadly still in my forecasts for the UK because of this inflation situation how quickly that gets rid of the inflation problem and therefore how they can then go to cutting rates and um, re-stimulating the, act- the activity that that's that looks further out to me so this idea then again and the imf i think and the oecd have been critical of this of the idea of being able to cut 
tax rates in the UK. I mean, business in some ways are crying out for this to try to direct investment towards growth. Mm. Um, and yet the focus is on income tax rates. Is the idea of a 2p tax cut coming in the next year, 18 months? Is How realistic is that? I mean, I, I don't know. The Chancellor will make those decisions based on his budget projections at the time, which are moving around, of course, as interest rate projections change, as the strength of the economy changes. I mean, on the relative who, who should be supported if there is scope, of course, there's been some phenomenal um, investment attempts. We had the super deduction, which was 130% tax break, effectively paying companies to go and invest. Didn't really bear through. The problem with investment is um, companies tend not to respond to incentives. They tend not to respond to tax cuts or low interest rates. Companies invest when they're really confident their order books are going to be full for the next three to five years. And that's harder, I think, for, for governments to, to, to generate. So, you know, you could argue that, therefore, if you can stimulate demand in the consumer and fill those order books, then that's going to be their best way of getting businesses investing because other things have been tried and haven't really worked. That's Karen Ward from JP Morgan speaking to Caroline Hepker and Tom McKenzie a little earlier as well. Really interesting to get her reflections on the day the OEC has published their update for the UK with sort of mixed reports. I mean, I, I would point to one of the positive things the OECD has highlighted, which is um, Jeremy Hunt's ambitious childcare reform plans to bring mm. more women into the workforce. They say that if that's implemented swiftly, it'll increase the labour supply, give some more of that certainty that Karen Ward was just talking about for investment and trade as well. But the problem about implementing it swiftly is, for example, if you want to get the childcare staff in maybe you have to dangle higher wages that could be inflationary and then the whole problem that you're trying to solve which is plugging the gap in the labour market to bring down inflation is just, tr- just pour that bucket of cold water on that, on that <laughs> idea. but yes a very good point yeah but also I just thought it was absolutely brutal uh, where Karen Ward says it's for this fragility is necessary um, from higher interest rates to make people question whether they're going to ask for pay rises to get companies to think twice about price increases it goes back to the controversial comment from uh, the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt about perhaps a recession being necessary Mm. and Ward actually says a recession is still likely. I would also just point out that the OECD chief economist Claire Lombardilli is actually the ex-Treasury chief economist so it makes that forecast today all the more stinging. Yeah of course it means that she knows the 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 country's economy inside out uh, as well. Well, that is it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Woolcock and our audio engineer was Marufal Hussain. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.